0: Today we begin a new sermon series entitled Chasing God's Heart. Over the next 10 weeks, we're going to examine the life of David. But before examining David's life, I think it might be advantageous for us to take a glance at his predecessor. It's with that in mind that I invite you to take your Bible and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. This morning I want to read two verses in your hearing, verses 22 and 23. Once you've found those verses in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. 1 Samuel chapter 15, I'll begin reading at verse 22. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, the understanding, and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. How much obedience does God really require? How much faithfulness does God truly expect? Certainly God appreciates our good intentions. He must understand our frailties. God certainly must be sympathetic towards our setbacks. So how much obedience does God really require these must have been the thoughts and statements that rattled around the mind of Israel's first king Saul was anointed king at the young age of 30 he ruled for 42 years with the Philistines breathing down the necks of Israel the nation clamored for a king they wanted to be like every other nation Now Israel was unique in the fact that God was their king. But the people of God had rejected God as their ruler. So they wanted an earthly king. And God obliged. He not only gave them an earthly king, he gave them a worldly king. Saul was appointed because he was head and shoulders above the rest. Literally the sacred text reads that Saul was tall and handsome. I'm sure that he would have graced the cover of any People magazine. He probably had the star-studded good looks of Hollywood and the style of royal nobility. It was a man named Samuel that anointed Saul. Now Samuel's a pretty important character in the Old Testament. He's a bridge character that links the period of the judges to the period of the monarchy. It is Samuel who's regarded as the last judge and the first prophet. As the prophet of God, he would be one who would say, thus saith the Lord. God would give him a message and then he in turn would go and give it to the king. This happened on a regular basis. Samuel, the prophet, gained an audience with Saul, the king. He would go into the court. He would tell the king what God wanted him to do on one particular Example is that the prophet gained an audience with King Saul and said, This is what the king, the Lord Almighty, says I will destroy the Amalekites. Because of the way they treated my people Israel as they waylaid them when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and destroy all the Amalekites, the men, the women, the boys, the girls, the children, the infants, the lambs, the livestock, everything. Now this God-given command to thoroughly annihilate an entire nation may sound odd to more than a few of us this morning. There are more than a few that that may not settle well. You might be thinking, that doesn't sound like God. God is kind and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love. This declaration that Saul was to amass an army and go and eradicate an entire nation of people, that doesn't sound right, that doesn't sound normal, and it doesn't sound fair. But friend, let me remind you that this is not the only time in sacred scripture when God gives such a command. There are other times when the Lord tells his people to do this very same thing to other pagan nations. And God always used this as a last resort. On every occasion, the people had an opportunity to repent. And after repeatedly refusing repentance then God would use this as a last-ditch effort, as a last resort to show himself as the just God of the universe. The Amalekites, they had had 400 years to repent. God says through the prophet to the king, I remember what the Amalekites did as my children came up out of Egypt, how they waylaid them, that That moment took place 400 years prior to our biblical story. Four centuries had come and gone. And God had given the Amalekites opportunity after opportunity. Sermon after sermon. Preacher after preacher. Privilege after privilege. Moments for them to repent. And they refused to repent. Instead of growing closer to God, the Amalekites grew more hostile toward God. Don't ever get the impression that the Amalekites were... Boy Scouts who helped little old ladies cross the desert streets. No, these guys were ruthless. These were pagans. They had no regard for God, no regard for His Word, no regard for His people. And so God used Saul and the Israelites to go annihilate a pagan nation. The king amassed an army that totaled 210,000 troops, they went and God gave the victory. And Saul, he was completely obedient to the instructions of God. Well, he was kind of obedient to the instructions of God. Okay, he was sort of obedient to the instructions of God. All right, he was mostly obedient to the instructions of God. He killed most of the people, not all the people. I mean, it's clear that God didn't stutter. It's clear that God said to put every person to the sword, men, women, children, and infants. Oh, but, but Saul just captured the king of the Amalekites. I mean, I know what you know. I, I know what God said. Saul knew what God said, but certainly God must have wanted the king of the Amalekites to live. And Saul did kill All the lambs and livestock, well, he killed most of the lambs and livestock. He kept the best ones, the choicest ones, the the strongest ones. He kept them for the nation. But but all the ones that nobody wanted, all the lousy lambs, all, all the pathetic livestock, all the scrawny cattle, they all died. So he was kind of obedient. He was sort of obedient to the instructions of God. Certainly, God would understand this. I mean, after all, how much obedience does God really require? Saul made his way to Gilgal through Carmel. Yes, this is the same Carmel, it's the same mountain where years later Elijah will have a showdown demonstrating that Yahweh is the one true God of the universe, single-handedly defeating the prophets and servants of Baal and Asherah. It's on this same mountain that years earlier, Saul, as he's making his way through after this dramatic victory against the Amalekites, what does Saul do? But he builds a monument unto himself. Now look, everybody knows that God frowns upon idol-making, But it's not every day that you thoroughly destroy one of your arch enemies of more than 400 years. Certainly God understands this little opportunity of self-gratification. I mean, it's just a trophy. It's just an award. It's just an accolade. It's just a monument. It's not that big of a deal, right? I mean, it's just something for Saul to always remember and boast about his victory over the Amalekites. After he made that little idol, and he made his way to Gilgal, he went there because that was a place of worship. It was also a military stronghold for Israel. And there uh, they settled down in the camp. They spent some time in Gilgal. It was during their days at Gilgal that the king looked over the horizon and, and, and there came the prophet. Now he recognized Samuel. He could recognize that stride, that gate miles away. He knew that the prophet was coming, but as he gazed upon the prophet and as Samuel got closer to King Saul, Saul could realize that he looked a little concerned. Now, it's true that the prophet never really cracked very many jokes. He was a pretty serious dude. It's not that um, he smiled a whole lot, but, but on this day, he seemed even more overburdened. So Saul wanted to lighten the mood. So as he got closer, he simply said to the prophet, the Lord be with you. Listen, I want you to know I have done everything that God has commanded me to do. All the instructions of God have been completely obeyed. I have thoroughly annihilated the Amalekites and I put to death all the people, men, women, boys, and girls, and I have slaughtered all of the lambs and livestock. I did everything that the Lord instructed me to do through you. Now, unbeknownst to the king another word from God had been given to the prophet. The second message, the Lord simply said, I am grieved that I made Saul king of the nation of Israel. Saul has disobeyed my instructions. The prophet looked at his king and he said, are you sure that you have completely obeyed? the Lord? Oh yes, I'm positive. I have completely obeyed the Lord. I've done everything the Lord instructed me to do. No sooner had he said that than in the background was the bleeding of sheep, the lowing of cattle. It was kind of like the proverbial smoking gun at the crime scene. The prophet said, why have you disobeyed the Lord? It's at this moment that the king begins to play the blame game. That's as old as the Garden of Eden. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. Here in our story, the king blames the soldiers. It's not my fault. It's really not my fault. They're the ones that took for themselves some of the best of the lambs and the livestock, but everything else was executed. Everything else was destroyed. It's not my fault. I did everything that the Lord wanted me to do. A few phrases before the passage that I read for you. Saul actually says to Samuel, the reason we did that was for worship, for sacrifices. We got the best of the lambs and the livestock so that we could sacrifice them to the Lord your God. Did you hear that phrase? Where the king of Israel says to the mighty prophet, we did this for the Lord your God. He didn't say, Lord, my God. He didn't even say, Lord, our God. He said, we're doing this for the Lord your God. It's at this moment that Samuel speaks his most notorious phrase in his prophetic ministry. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much As hearing and obeying the voice of the Lord. To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. This selective obedience of Saul. It was perfectly fine for Saul. And in fact, some of his contemporaries would have said, ah, it's not a big deal, don't worry about it. But from God's perspective... Partial obedience is nothing other than disobedience. The prophet of God says to the king, what God wants more than your act of worship, what God wants more than the slicing of animals, what God wants more than sacrifice is obedience and to heed his instruction." Is more valuable to God than the fat of rams. The fat of rams was the best portion to be offered in a sacrifice unto Yahweh himself. What the prophet Samuel is saying is what God desires is your complete, passionate obedience. To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. Because partial obedience is nothing other than disobedience. I know that it's been 3,000 years since Saul lived. But I got to tell you this morning, Saul looks very familiar. And I can't quite put my finger on it. I think I've met Saul. I mean, he looks strikingly familiar. Maybe it's that I grew up with a childhood friend that looked like Saul. Maybe that's it. Or, better yet, maybe, maybe I played ball with a few guys that strongly resembled Saul. Whereas I think about it, maybe I graduated from seminary with a couple of guys that look just like Saul. Or better yet, maybe I've pastored some people in other churches, of course. That look just like Saul. Or maybe there's some people that resemble Saul that stare back at me every Sunday. Wait a minute. Maybe, maybe the man who looks at me in the mirror every morning, sometimes. Looks too much like Saul. A person who knows the Word of God, a person who knows what ought to be done, but at best is selective in obedience. And whenever uh, that obedience is questioned, it's easily defensible by saying, It's not my fault. Maybe, maybe you look more like Saul. Than you've ever wanted to admit. And it's when the word of God confronts us. That we hear in the background. The bleeding of sheep. And the lowing of the cattle. And it indicts you. Just as prominently. As it indicts Saul. It's the word of God. That teaches us that we ought to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we would adamantly agree that that's who we are as God's people. We love God with all the stuff that's inside of us. We love God and we love God's gospel. Until that gospel begins to cramp the American dream in our lives. You know, the American dream is largely built on comfort and convenience. The American dream pretty much says life ought to be comfortable for you. Life ought to be convenient for you. You ought to have a life that is absent of suffering and sacrifice, ought to be loaded with success. That's the American dream, right? To get whatever you want, to climb whatever ladder that's in front of you, for you to be successful and have the accolades, the awards on the wall, for people to pat you on the back, for your life to be comfortable, for your life to be convenient. Isn't that The American dream. But what happens when the gospel permits us to suffer? What happens when the gospel demands from us sacrifice? Could it be that the way we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength can truly only be seen in suffering? Is it possible That the only way we love God with all the stuff that's inside of us is when we acquiesce and surrender and sacrifice all that we have unto this good gospel. Friend, when I stop and consider this, I realize that partial obedience is nothing other than disobedience. The Word of God Teaches us that we ought to worship Christ exclusively. And that's who we are. We are Jesus people. We love Jesus. We worship Him. We gather in worship. We live a life of worship. He has our undivided heart, right? Until we begin to examine our lives and realize that sometimes we bow the knee to money and greed. And co- collecting all the things that make our life wonderful. And after we have worshiped the ground that our children and our grandchildren have walked on, and if you don't believe me that we worship the ground that our children and grandchildren have walked on, just look at our social media pages. And it gives graphic evidence that what we worship is our stuff and our families and the image that we want to portray. And after a good Saturday in the fall, when we have bowed the knee to an elephant or an eagle or a wildcat, once we have bowed the knee to whatever sporting event that we are, are giving ourselves to, then we can come on Sunday and we can worship God with all that we have. For he is the one who's exclusive in our undivided heart. Really? Really? Could it be that you and I need to be reminded today that partial obedience... Is nothing other than disobedience? The word of God instructs us that we ought to be passionate about purity. And we say that we are passionate about purity. And we can quickly point out in other people's lives where they are immoral and impure. But I wonder how many of our young people and our young individuals who are in relationship but not married yet. I wonder how many have gone too far on a Friday night in the backseat of the car. I wonder how many have given something away that can never be taken back again. I wonder how many other individuals in this faith family get caught in that occasional or even more than occasional glance at a lustful image on a computer screen or an iPhone. I wonder how many times a sexual thought flies across the screen of your mind and that sexual thought has something to do with somebody other than your spouse. I wonder how many times we speak a vulgar joke or laugh at a crude comment. All of which reveals the total depravity and the rebellion of our hearts, right? And on this day when we would say that we are passionate about purity, sometimes I wonder really how passionate are we about the purity in our very lives. We are passionate about other people's purity. But I wonder if we take that same level of passion and reflect it in our own lives. All I'm trying to tell you is that partial obedience is nothing other than disobedience. You do realize that the Word of God, it commands us and invites us into the awesome privilege of taking this gospel to the nation's We have the awesome opportunity to take the gospel to a lost and dying world and tell people who are dead in their sin the only way for them to be saved, the only serum of salvation, the only remedy for their righteousness is the Lord Jesus Christ. That by believing upon his accomplished work, death, burial, and resurrection, that upon believing upon the work of Jesus, that a dead person can be made alive both now and forevermore. And oh, we have the awesome privilege... Of taking this gospel to the nations. And we say this is part of our DNA here at First Baptist Pelham. In just a few weeks we're going to roll out 20 mission trips in 2020. We're going to have 17 mission partners. You're going to have the privilege of meeting. We're going to be able to say that this is, is what is what streams through our veins. We will puff our chest and we will say this is the DNA of our faith family. Really? Because we know that God wants us to go to the nations. But we have the hardest time going across the street and telling our cranky neighbor about Christ. It is is a challenge for us to go within a three-mile radius of the steeple and share the gospel door-to-door with our people, our neighbors, those who live right here around us. And we say that we are gospel people, evangelistic people. We are on mission for the Lord. And yet we can't even go across the street. Or maybe the reverse is true. That we are willing to go into another context. Maybe it's across the pond. Maybe it's across the world. But we won't do it here. Maybe we are people who will go across the street. But we won't go someplace else in the world, and God is prompting us to do it, and we're giving him every excuse under the sun of why we're not the right ones. All I'm trying to tell you, church, is that partial obedience is nothing other than disobedience. In the New Testament letter to the Hebrew people, uh, the author of the Hebrew letter says, "Uh, do not give up meeting together. As some are in the habit of doing. Now what that means is uh, the author of that letter wanted the church to come to church. Wanted people to show up on Sunday and to praise the Lord. Do not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. In other words, come to church. Be committed unto church attendance. And we would say we are extremely committed unto church attendance. We are so committed unto church that we are here every time the doors are open. And yet the hard facts are these, that the vast majority of us will come to church 22 to 27 times in the year 2020, which is approximately half of the Sundays, that the vast majority of us will come no more than twice a month. And if you're here today listening to the sermon, what that means, I guess, is that you'll come only 21 to 26 more times in twenty-twenty. Because the numbers bear out 22 to 27 times a year. And we call that faithful. We say we're committed to church and to church attendance. We do not neglect it so long as there's not another thing to do or another trip or another ball game or something else. We are here half the time and that ought to be applauded. Let me ask you, if you were only at work 50% of the time, Would your boss call you a faithful employee? He would probably call you unemployed. If you were faithful to your spouse 50% of the time, would your spouse call you faithful as she stood over your dead body? I'm just asking. And friend, if it doesn't fly in the marriage, and if it doesn't fly in the marketplace, why do we think it's gonna fly here in God's house? It's not that we come to church just to check it off a box. We come to church because we need it. We come to church because we have a, a routine every seventh day where we're reminded that the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. And somehow, some way, by me being here and you being here, it strengthens us as brothers and sisters for the days to come. It's not that we have to come to church. We need to come to church. And the Word of God tells us, do not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. The Word of God also instructs us very clearly that we are to love one another and forgive one another. We're to love as God has loved us in Christ. We're to forgive as God has forgiven us through Jesus Christ. And certainly, we are a loving people and a forgiving people. I mean, we love one another. We forgive one another. But does God really expect me to love all of you? Does God really want me to forgive every one of you? Does God really expect for us to love and forgive people that have hurt us and harmed us and slapped us? And stabbed us behind the back. Are we really expected to love and to serve and to forgive people that have lied to us and lied about us? Are we expected to to, to love people that don't look like us or walk like us or talk like us or vote like us or cheer like us or work like us? Are we really expected to love people that, let's just be honest, we don't like very much and truth be told, they don't like us very much either. Are we really expected to love them? And forgive them. And yet my friend. Do I need to remind us. That we were enemies of God. Enemies of God. Not friends of God. We were enemies of God. And Jesus came to reconcile. Us to God. And as God has loved us in Christ. And as God has forgiven us in Christ. Then we are compelled. To love and forgive others. All I'm trying to tell you. Is that partial obedience. Is nothing other than disobedience the word of God is very clear when it instructs us to whom much is given much is required now that can be applied to a lot of different areas and arenas of life but one area it must be applied to is the area of our resources and our generosity to much is given much is required and this past week I was confronted with a question that really stopped me in my tracks. Because if you were to ask, am I generous? I would say, yes, I'm generous. If I asked, are you generous? You would say, yes, you're generous. Here's the question that stopped me dead in my tracks. The person just simply wrote, "Um, evaluate this past year of 2019, how much money you gave to mission versus how much money you gave for your vacation. And which one is more? How much did you give to the life and work of the church and the mission and ministry of God through First Baptist Pelham or other organizations versus how much did you spend just on your own personal pleasure? And which one is more? Did you give more money this past year to your own recreation versus the God of creation? Which one won out in the bank account? Your recreation or God and his creation? That's a question that stopped me dead in my tracks. And it's not one that's hard to figure out. Because in about four to six weeks, anybody who gave anything to First Baptist Pelham, you're going to get a contribution statement from the church. And all you have to do is look at that contribution statement and then go look at your QuickBooks or your bank account or whatever you use, whatever operation you have, and look at that and see how much did I spend on the mission of me Versus how much did I spend on the mission of God? What I'm trying to tell you is that partial obedience is nothing other than disobedience. When you and I are confronted with the word of God, we hear sheep and cattle in the background, don't we? Maybe I'm the only one. Maybe this is a sermon just for me, but I can tell you from where I'm standing, from my vantage point, I hear sheep and I hear cattle. I hear and see the smoking gun in my life and in your life, and I just have a holy hunch I'm not the only one right now hearing sheep in the background, hearing cattle in the background, where we were selective in our obedience to God, but not passionate about our obedience to God. And I wonder, do you hear the bleeding of sheep? And the lowing of cattle? To Saul's credit, when Samuel confronted him, uh, Saul acknowledged, I have sinned. Please forgive me. The problem with that request is that Samuel's a prophet. He's not a priest. And beyond that, only God can forgive sin. Not even the priest can truly forgive sin. And the prophet just looked in the eyes of his king and said, The Lord has taken the kingdom away from you and given it to another. Samuel turned to walk away. And that's when the king grabbed the hem of his garment. And as Samuel turned to walk away, walk away, it was Saul that gave a tug in frustration and disgust. And he ripped the hem of the garment. And Samuel looked back at King Saul and said, just as you have ripped and torn apart this garment, so God has torn away the kingdom from you. You get to the end of chapter 15 and the line simply says that God was grieved that he had made Saul king of the nation of Israel. I don't know if there's a darker day in Israel's history. She wanted a king. She had rejected the rule and reign of God. She wanted an earthly king, and the nation of Israel got an earthly king. And at the end of the story of Saul as the reader, you sit there and you think to yourself, there's got to be a better king. There's got to be one that's better than Saul. Now, if you've read any part of the story of the life of David, you know that even as early as 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, the prophet declares that one will be appointed and anointed who has the very heart of God. And so you realize that that David is that one after God's own heart. And I don't want to be a spoiler over the next 10 weeks in order to tell you that if you know anything about David, you know that at best, David also is selective in his obedience. He's not one who is perfectly passionate in his obedience unto the Lord. And so, I mean I still want you to come back every week over the next 10 weeks, but I'm gonna tell you at the end of the 10 weeks, we're still gonna say, we need another king. If the best we've got is Saul, and David, and then Solomon, we are a sorry, lost lot of people. If that's the best we've got, we need another king. And friends, we have another king. Because there will come a king who is passionate in his obedience unto the word of the Lord, not just when it's convenient, but out of conviction. There will come a king who will liberate the bondage of sinful slavery. There will come a king who will say, not my way, but your way be done. There will come a king who will climb up Calvary's hill. He will take the punishment that you deserve and I deserve for all of our, our uh, partial obedience. And Jesus, the king of all kings and Lord of all lords, will be nailed to a cross. He will absorb all of the condemnation and the punishment that we deserve. His dead body will be taken off the cross, placed into a borrowed tomb, And on the third day, Jesus will be raised from the dead to demonstrate once and for all. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. Friend, can I tell you that the essence of the gospel is this. That Jesus takes our partial obedience and it's imparted unto him. So that he can impute unto us his passionate obedience. That's the essence of the gospel. It's the sweet swap of salvation. We give to him all of our selective, partial mess of obedience. And he takes it upon himself as if he lived it. And then he renders unto us. He he imputes unto us. It is given as if it belongs unto us. His perfect, innocent righteousness. That his passionate obedience is given unto us. So that when God the Father looks at me, he sees the obedience of Christ. When God the Father looks at you, he sees belief the obedience of Christ as belonging to you as if you lived it. That, my friend, is the essence of the gospel. Yesterday, I spent all day in Upward Basketball and I had the awesome privilege of talking with many of you and many of our friends in the community and just sharing a quick devotion. Part of that devotion I talked about was that I no longer... Do New Year's resolutions? Do you? I mean, how many of you do New Year's resolutions? Not very many, a couple, but not many. Do you know why I gave up on New Year's resolutions? Because most of my New Year's resolutions were an exercise in futility because it was based upon my willpower to stop doing something or to start doing something. And I would come up with these grandiose plans of what I was going to stop doing, what I was going to start doing, and it was going to be great and awesome. And most years, by the time I get to this date, January the 5th, I've already busted it. I've already broken it. And it didn't take me very long to say, that's a bunch of hogwash. I don't need to do that anymore because my willpower will fail. And if I do a resolution based on me, it's an exercise of futility. Does God want us to have resolutions? Absolutely, he wants us to be resolute. He wants us to resolutely surrender unto him. He wants us to resolutely serve him. He wants us to resolutely worship and love him. Not just at the beginning of a year, but the beginning of every month, the beginning of every day, the beginning of every hour, the beginning of every minute. Moment by moment, we live resolute unto Christ. And one of the great gifts that God gives us in Jesus Christ is the power to be obedient. So I am not calling you to pull up yourself by your bootstraps. I am not calling you just to grin and bear it. I am not calling you just to try harder. But friend, if you heard any of the sheep or cattle in the background of your mind If you heard any of that, that's just evidence that you need to surrender today unto the Lord. I am calling you to surrender unto him. And you may say, but pastor, I'm already a believer. I'm already a Christian. I don't need to surrender. Friend, if you heard the bleeding of sheep and the lowing of cattle, that just means you need to surrender unto Christ today. Surrender unto him all of your failures. Surrender unto him all of your mistakes. Surrender unto him all of your partial obedience and leave that mess and leave that junk right here at the altar and stand up in the power and the strength of Christ and him crucified and resurrected from the dead and walk out knowing that my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. So praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. This morning, I call you that if you hear the sheep and cattle in the background, if you look a little bit too much like Saul today, I want you to come and lay all of your partial obedience at the feet of Christ and pick up his passionate obedience that can belong to you by faith. Today's the day for you to walk out of here in the strength and the power of the king his name is jesus heavenly father we bow before you we give this invitation lord we pray that we will surrender and lay down all of our partial obedience and all of us are guilty not a one of us can say that we are completely and passionately obedient unto you all of us fall on our faces and this morning the altar ought to be full Of your people clamoring to you as king, your people coming and saying, God, please, I can't do this. I need you to help me. That's our prayer in Jesus'.